Hi, everybody. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, host of Church Life Today. Before we get to today's episode, just a quick word from me to you. We just passed our second anniversary of this show, and I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for listening, and thanks for all the great feedback you've sent our way in the past two years. If you like what you hear in our conversations with pastoral leaders and scholars, please pass our episodes along to others. Everything's available online at RedeemerRadio.com slash churchlife or on SoundCloud at Church Life Today. And if you live in an area where your local Catholic radio station does not carry our show, call your station, send them an email, ask them to take us on. Now let's get to today's show. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. In June and early July 2020, we've heard news just about weekly of controversial or at least hotly contested Supreme Court decisions. Maybe you found yourself with strong reactions now and again, but you weren't really totally clear about what you were reacting to. What actually was at stake in that case, and what does the ruling really mean? I have questions like that too, especially in cases that are of special interest to many Catholics and other religious believers. Cases about religious liberty or immigration, healthcare mandates, or abortion law. To help us get a better sense for some of these summer 2020 Supreme Court decisions and their ramifications, I'm happy to welcome back Rick Garnett, professor of law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where he is also the founding director of the program on church, state, and society. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. This is part one of a two-part interview with Professor Garnett. Rick Garnett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Lenny. So maybe it's just me, Rick, but a lot of people seem to suddenly become interested in the Supreme Court every summer. Why is that? For those of us with law degrees and those of us who kind of follow the Supreme Court for a living, it's kind of funny on social media when, um, you know, I guess right now people are taking a break from being armchair epidemiologists and now they're all armchair constitutional law scholars. But I have a joke sort of that I tell my constitutional law students is I tell them that they might be surprised to know this, but there's actually two Supreme Courts. There's what I call the, the May Court and the June Court. And that got thrown off a little bit this year because we ran into July. But the point I was trying to make is that, you know, a whole lot of the court's work between October and May is the press ignores it. It's not particularly hot button. It's The cases aren't particularly ideological. They tend to involve technical legal questions that law geeks like me enjoy, but the New York Times doesn't care about having to do with statutory interpretation and what have you. Those cases are not five to four. They're not left versus right, red versus blue. Often they're unanimous. My students are often surprised to learn that most Supreme Court opinions are unanimous or eight to one. But then there's the June court, which does all the kind of hot button cases that the press decides to focus on as the court winds down its term. And those tend to involve controversial questions, issues about which Americans are divided, issues with political significance, and the whole country gets focused on that. But I do think it's always worth remembering, just as a citizen, never mind as a law student, that most of the time, the lawyers up there at the Supreme Court are acting like lawyers, not not like politicians or kings, and they get along pretty well, they respect each other. And, um, you know, not everything is liberals versus conservatives and so on. Most of what they do is pretty straightforward law stuff. And that's, I mean for that to be reassuring, but 
I assume now you want to talk about the June court. Well, yeah, now I'm part of the problem, right? Because I've asked you to come on the show and talk about the June court. So maybe I should have done an episode just to get myself out of this bind. Uh, we could have done it in, in May and talked about the boring tedium that you're talking about that really is about keeping the courts and the legal system going. Yeah, yeah. But in any event, let's jump into the drama. And I guess part of our conversation is not just to make this drama, but I, I wanted to ask you about you know some of what was at stake in, in some of these more high profile cases, especially ones that Catholics or other religiously inclined people have been paying attention to. So I thought maybe yeah. we could start with Bostock v. Clayton County, which had to do with questions of employment protection or discrimination and the applicability of Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Could you give us an explanation of what was at issue in this case and then yeah, kind of sure. guide us to how it was decided? So just a little bit of background, starting, let's say, in the mid-60s, Congress enacts at the federal level, but of course, states have enacted these laws also, and cities have enacted these laws, but a series of employment discrimination provisions. Title VII was part of a package of other civil rights laws that affected things like discrimination in housing and other matters. But the federal rule, Title VII, which again has been a model for a lot of state and local laws, does not permit, generally speaking, employment discrimination because of sex, and it uses the term sex. And there's, you know, an interesting history about, there was actually a debate back in the 60s about whether sex should even be included, whether it should focus more just on race, ethnicity, alienage, and, and so on. But it, it said sex, and that's basically what it's, that is the term that's been used ever since. Now, all over the country, in a lot of states and in a lot of towns, legislatures or city councils or whatever have added to the list of reasons you're not allowed to discriminate on. They've added sexual orientation, and then increasingly some have added gender identity. So in a lot of places around the country, it's illegal to discriminate in employment on the basis of, and they use the terms, sex, comma, sexual orientation, comma, or gender identity. That's not what Congress did. For a long time, there's been arguments in Congress about changing Title VII so that it says sexual orientation and more recently also gender identity, but those efforts had never succeeded in the legislature. So getting to Bostock now, uh, in Bostock, the, the argument that was made in a bunch of cases that were consolidated together was that even though the statute only uses the word sex, that prohibition on sex discrimination also includes a prohibition on sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity discrimination. So this case was not about the Constitution, and it wasn't, at least it didn't purport to be about the, the policy. What surprised people and what I think a lot of people have criticized the opinion for is that a majority of the court said, you know what? What do you know? Even though Congress has been debating whether to add sexual orientation and gender identity to the statute and, and not doing it, and even though lots of litigants have argued that the term sex also covers sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity discrimination, and no court until recently had embraced that theory, it turns out, the majority told us, that the term sex, which was put in there back in the mid-60s, has sort of all along, you know, who, who knew, uh, has all along included these other prohibited grounds as well. So it was a case about how to interpret statutes. And what the justices disagreed about was whether or not the majority's kind of, some would say clever or some would say creative reading of the statute was really faithful to what the statute actually meant. And so the worry is that the, did the court interpret the statute or did it simply rewrite it? Hmm. Well, some people, including the president of the USCCB have claimed that the court in this ruling has moved towards redefining the legal meaning of sex, which, as you said, was the key term here. 
Do you find that to be true or is it potentially true? Well, I guess I'd say potentially in the sense that a lot of the larger debate about what does it mean to talk about gender identity and so on, those conversations do bump up against traditional ideas about embodiment and biological sex. And so certainly it's related. One of the things that was interesting about Justice Gorsuch's opinion, though, and you know, again, some of the critics would say it was more than just interesting, was it? He says, no, I'm using the term sex in its traditional, common sense, biological meaning. But his point was, is that when someone discriminates on the basis of sexual orientation, they're also, in fact, unavoidably making a categorization that turns on or is attached to biological sex. So, again, in response to your question, Justice Gorsuch would say, no, the the term sex still means what they thought it meant in 64. It means biological sex. It's just that we can describe gender identity discrimination as also being, or at least also involving, discrimination on the basis of biological sex. Now, again, some might say that's sort of too clever by half, and it's not really consistent with what Congress thought it was doing in 1964, and it's not consistent with what Congress thought, thinks it's been doing for the last 20 years. And in keeping with the USCCB's point, certainly it's connected to these larger debates about gender identity and sex. The majority of the court would say, that's not what we did. Hmm. Now, I don't know if I, if I should ask you if you found his opinion persuasive, but just to to reiterate what you're saying here, that Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion here, authored it, had said that we're not expanding the term sex to mean sexual orientation and gender identity, but in order to make a judgment on somebody's employment, in this case, a discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, you're making an implicit or explicit appeal to the sex of that person. Exactly right. Okay. that's That's what he would say. Okay. What did you consider the best argument against this ruling? I know, I believe it was Justice Alito who was more than a little passionate in his dissenting opinion, but... I mean, so we could, we could talk about this on two levels, and one would be kind of the, the wisdom of the policy that this decision represents, and you know, we could talk about that for hours, but I tend, as a lawyer, to have a certain view of you know, what we call the separation of powers, where just like you learned in high school, mm-hmm. you know, different branches have different jobs, and I don't think it's convincing what Justice Gorsuch did to say that kind of all along, this is what the statute involves or has covered. I think Justice Kavanaugh actually had a good response. He said, just, of course, it's true that we should be textualists when we interpret the statute. And of of course, it's true that um, the words of the statute are what matter. Um, But, you know, you, you can't read a statute in a way that is so, Justice Kavanaugh said, that is so kind of, um, uh, pointillistic that hmm. that uh, takes a particular word in isolation of its uh, of the rest of the context of a particular statute. It, as, as Justice Kavanaugh said, it should never be the case that a judge interprets a statute in a way that surprises everybody who's been living under that statute for forty <laughs> years, yeah, or more. Yeah, and I, I think that's right. Um, I share the concern that the court did here. What even someone who thinks the policy is good should leave to a legislature. Mm. The question of who decides here, the legislature or the judicial branch. Yeah. And we have, you know, at the federal level anyway, we have three branches for a reason. Mm-hmm. That was an important part of our constitutional design. This is Leonard Lorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Rick Garnett, professor of law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where he is also the founding director of the Program on Church, State, and Society 
Professor Garnett is helping us review the Supreme Court's summer 2020 decisions. This will be a two-part episode. We're in part one right now. There's much more, of course, to say about this, and I know you'll be teaching about it and in conversations with your colleagues about it for some time to come. But if you don't mind, let's move from that case, Bostock, to a case that was decided later in the summer in which two Catholic schools were the petitioners to the court. That was Our Lady of Guadalupe School, which was the sort of headline name, and St. James School, which was grouped in this case. This was also a case about employment, but it wasn't just about that, as I understand it. It was also and perhaps primarily a case about religious liberty and the liberty of the religious institution in this case. So I know this case is very close to your own special scholarly interests and expertise. So tell us what was at issue here. Yeah, sure. And and just so your listeners know I'm doing full disclosure, I, I filed a brief in this case on the side of the schools, and that was the side that won, so I, I'm not neutral with respect to this uh, case. But the idea here, this is, this is a case that's really about the meaning of the separation of church and state. Sometimes, you know, that phrase, separation of church and state, is misunderstood or it's weaponized in a way that's like, that it means, you know, religious believers should stay out of the public square or faith has nothing to do with public life. That's not what the separation of church and state means historically, though. At its core, what the separation of church and state was supposed to be about, and I think our Constitution's Establishment Clause reflects this, is that we didn't want the political authority trying to make religious decisions or meddle in religious affairs. There's lots of room for disagreement in law and religion cases, but it seems like the core thing that we Americans have been committed to is we don't want the government picking the bishops. (laughs) (laughs) And so the principle had developed over the years, at least 40 years ago, that even in cases where employment discrimination laws might suggest that schools cannot fire a particular teacher or they must hire a particular teacher or what have you. The idea had developed that when you're talking about religious institutions and employees who have religious tasks, that the government shouldn't use anti-discrimination law to second guess these religious organizations' decisions. And the, the main idea here is that, you know, if a church fires a pastor because they think he's a bad preacher or they think he's a heretic, how is a civil court ever going to review that determination? It's, that's not, again, separation of church and state, that's not their portfolio, right? So the Supreme Court eight years ago unanimously held in a case involving a Lutheran school that a particular teacher who'd been fired couldn't bring an employment discrimination lawsuit to challenge that decision because she played a ministerial role. Well, what had happened in these two California cases involving Catholic parochial schools, same kind of deal. Two teachers are fired. They file employment discrimination lawsuits. These are lawsuits that might well have been successful if they'd been fired by Walmart or by Ford Motor Company. But the fact is they were both parochial school teachers in a Catholic school, and they both had significant religious duties, even though they weren't just theology teachers, and they didn't have a title like minister or pastor or sister or anything like that. So some lower courts said uh, in California said, well, these, these cases are different. It's not like the Lutheran case because they had some secular jobs too, and they didn't have a religious title. They didn't have a certain kind of theology degree or whatever, and really narrowed the uh, religious freedom principle. And so the court took these cases and the other day ruled, this time seven to two, not unanimously, but Still, seven to two, two of the more liberal justices agreed with the five more conservative justices that, um, no, these cases don't turn on whether your title is pastor or rabbi or father, and they don't turn on how much religious training you've had. The question is, do you play a a role in the religious mission of the institution? Do you have some uh, important 
religious activity or function. It's a functional analysis. And they said in these schools, given the mission of these K through eight parochial schools, a teacher who's taking kids to mass and sometimes talking about scripture and, and church teaching and, and, you know, modeling for the kids does count as ministerial. And therefore the court courts are not going to um, interfere in these employment disputes. So that's what happened. And again, um, even though it came out in July, it had that kind of seven to two May court kind of <laughs> vibe. Uh-huh. A lot of the press coverage was sort of misleading. It suggested that the court had somehow created some new doctrine that removes all job protections from Catholic school teachers. And that's just not true. This rule has been around for a long time. Uh, the court just had to step in here because a lower court had done something relatively surprising. Mm. But it's an important ruling for religious schools. I mean, if you believe that if you believe that personnel is policy, you believe that any organization with a mission, whether it's the Sierra Club or, you know, the Green Party or, or a parochial school, is going to care about who's hired to kind of express the mission or the charism or the identity commitments of the institution. And so I, I connect these cases uh, in important ways with these kind of really ancient commitments we have to keeping political and religious authorities distinct precisely in order to protect the autonomy of religious institutions. Now, did did the court in, in ruling on this case, did it determine who has the authority to decide whose role, say, in a, in a school like this has in any way a, a kind of mission function, maybe not, you know, expressly a ministerial function, but can, in other words, can the Catholic school, can the diocese decide that, well, clearly the janitor and the secretary and everybody is part of the mission. Do they have that authority? Yeah. So this is this is the sort of questions that are going to be raised going forward. There was a concurring opinion that Justice Thomas wrote where he explicitly said it's very important for courts to be deferential to the organization's characterization of the jobs in question, mainly because, as he pointed out, you worry that courts, when they confront minority religions or unfamiliar religions or sort of decentralized religions, they might say, well, that person's not a minister because it doesn't have, you know, pastor in front of her name or whatever. So I think there is a sense that a religious organization's own understanding of that role is very important and deserves respect. At the same time, it's not a, it's not a rubber stamp. It's not automatic. At the end of the day, it does remain for a court to decide whether the employee has an important religious function. But if a school has, let's say, a contract or a mission statement that makes it very clear in a public way that this is our expectation, this is how we see this role interacting with our mission, that's going to be something that a court's going to take very seriously. Now, Rick, the last time that we spoke, which was back in when February 2020, I think, when society was still <laughs> functioning without thought of a virus, we spent quite a bit of time discussing a case pertaining to Roncalli Catholic High School in Indianapolis, closer to, to where we live in, in South Bend, in which a former employee, her name's Lynn Starkey, is suing the school and the archdiocese after her contract was not re- renewed on account of her legally marrying another woman. Right. So will this decision, Our Lady of Guadalupe, will this effectively settle that case, do you think? Well, it's it's a very good precedent for the schools that want to defend their authority over this question. You know, in, in each of the cases that involving the various Indiana schools, I imagine one could try to identify differences between the roles that these teachers were playing and the roles that the teachers in the Supreme Court case uh, the other day were playing. Right. But my own, my own judgment is that if a, a court that faithfully applies the decisions that came down the other day would really have to conclude 
that the teachers in these Indiana cases are covered by the scope of this church state doctrine. So in that way, I mean, in that particular case with this, the case of Ron Colley High School and this former employee, there is a sort of adjudication between the first case we were talking about, Bostock, which had to do with Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and yep. this case in terms of the authority of the religious institution to determine its employees, the, the terms of employment for its mission. Yeah, although it's interesting. I mean, certainly the issues are connected, but my recollection is that the Roncalli School is in a jurisdiction that already had, as a matter of local law, ah. an explicit prohibition on discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender. So in a sense, the Title VII Bostock case- It was already there. There, yeah. yeah. Similar issue, though, obviously. I see. Very good. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Rick Garnett, professor of law, concurrent professor of political science at Notre Dame. He's also the founding director of the program on church, state, and society. He's helping us to review the Supreme Court's 2020 decisions. This is the first of two episodes that we'll uh, do together, talking about some of these decisions. Well, let's connect this then to one other case maybe we can talk about in this first of our two episodes. It's also related to religious schools, and that was the case of Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. This case concerned tuition assistance for private schools from, as far as I understand, from government sources. What was at issue in this case? Yeah. So again, I, just by way of disclosure, I filed a brief in this case too. Uh, <laughs> I'm asking the, um, about these for a reason. I know that you have yeah. great interest and expertise uh, this is, here. This is an issue that's kind of near and dear to my heart. One of the first cases I ever worked on as a lawyer 24 years ago was basically the issue that the Supreme Court decided in Espinosa. So I've been waiting a long time for this. But um, yeah, so Montana had uh, enacted a tuition tax credit program. And the, the way the mechanism works is people could donate money to the program, they get a tax credit for their donation, and then some of the money for, that was donated could be given out in the form of tuition assistance to kids who chose religious schools. Pretty small amounts. I think the standard uh, scholarship amount was about $150. Programs like that are permissible. The court decided almost 20 years ago that school choice programs like this, you're, you're allowed to have them. They don't violate the separation of church and state. But Montana has its own constitution as all states do. And Montana has a provision in its constitution that's much stricter in terms of um, prohibiting public funds from going to what they call sectarian schools. Now, as a matter of American history, these no aid amendments, they, they were incorporated into a lot of state constitutions in the middle and late 19th centuries, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily as an effort really to stick it to Catholic schools. Um, mm. This was at a time when there's Catholic immigrants and there's a lot of backlash against Catholic immigrants. There was a you know a whole political party called the Know Nothings that was basically dedicated to the proposition that Catholics could never be good Americans. So in the late 1800s, a lot of these states adopted strict prohibition on, again, funding for, quote, sectarian, which everybody knew was code for Catholic schools. Because you have to remember, in the 1800s, it wasn't like the public schools were secular. They were all Protestant. Right. Um, kids read the King James Bible. Right. So the Montana court, Montana Supreme Court says, well, look at this tax credit program. You know, maybe it'd be fine in some other state, but it violates the Montana Constitution. And so the tax credit program's got to go. And they struck that tax credit program in its entirety, not just money for religious private schools, but for non-religious private schools as well. So the Supreme Court says, long story short, <laughs> no, you can't do that. Even though this is, even though it's a Montana constitutional provision, the federal constitution doesn't permit governments to discriminate when they're giving out benefits or determining eligibility or 
in any context, you can't discriminate against religion as such. You can't say the tax rate is 25%, but if you're religious, it's 30. Or you can't say public employees get paid $25,000, you know, unless they're religious and then they get 20. You can't have just bare bones, straight up religion-based discrimination. And in the Supreme Court's view, correct view, I believe, uh, what Montana had in effect done was to say, these children are eligible for benefits and the schools are eligible to receive them, even if they're private schools, so it's not just public schools. But if it's a religious school, then they're disqualified. And mm-hmm. so to have a religious disqualification, the court said, violates the free exercise clause. And um, Justice Alito had a concurring opinion where he really went into detail about the kind of historical context and particularly the anti-Catholic motivations underlying these so-called Blaine amendments. Uh, And I think even though that wasn't the basis for the court's decision, uh, I think that was an important kind of public education service. A lot of Americans don't know this history. You know, a lot of Catholics don't know this history, but, um, you know, hostility to Catholic schools was a very real thing for a a non-trivial part of American history. What do you see as the ramifications of maybe this decision or maybe in in tandem with the one we were just discussing, the Guadalupe decision, in terms of the the clarification of the separation, but also the relationship between church and state, and maybe especially for Catholics? Yeah, so we have an interesting, I don't think this is a contradiction at all. I think it's just an an interesting feature of American church-state relations that's coming into picture now, is that cooperation between religious institutions and secular authorities is permissible, right? We have, you know, think how, I mean, think how, I know you know this, how many religious social service organizations provide ministries and and aid to the poor. Um, Think how many religious universities and hospitals there are. So religious institutions cooperate with the state all the time. And that's permissible. And that's actually in a pluralistic society, a good thing. At the same time, and this is what the Guadalupe School tells us, is that religious institutions, they don't have to give up their character or their mission or their distinctiveness simply because they're engaged in cooperation, right? So Notre Dame can take public funds, uh, you know, through student loan programs or, or research grants or what have you, but we're still allowed to have mass in the Basilica and have the Blessed Mother up on the dome. Similarly, these religious schools are allowed to cooperate in the enterprise of education and to receive some public funding assistance, because remember, the public funding is really, it's for the kid, it's not for the school. And that's permissible too. And then you add to that, and this is what Espinosa is reminding us, that um, this no discrimination rule, that uh, cooperation with religion is permissible and discrimination against it as such is, is not permissible. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that governments are required to enact school vouchers or that right. governments are required. It, it, it wasn't that at all. It's Montana's Exactly. Montana's allowed to say public schools are the only schools that get funding. But once you decide to give money to some secular private schools, Uh you can't then discriminate against religious. And so that could have really big implications for, you know, scholarship, tuition credits, vouchers, all that kind of stuff. Very good. That's really clarifying. Thank you so much. Well, Rick, if you don't mind, stick around. We'll do a second half to this interview. If you're listening to us on radio, part two will air next week. If you're listening to us on our podcast, just go right to the next episode and you can listen in just a moment. I'm talking with Professor Rick Garnett of the University of Notre Dame Law School. He'll stick around for a second episode. We'll talk about the 2020 summer Supreme Court decisions. Thanks, Rick. Sure. 
This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?